years, but it, it's, it, it's, it is difficult sometimes to get through this stuff and to pick out the nuggets that are there, but they're always, God's word is, not, is always fruitful if you're, if you're looking for what he has for us in it. Last week, when we finished up chapter 5, we were discussing how the example that we set as parents can be multi-generational. We also saw how the corruption was flourishing in the line of Cain and how the line of Seth was kind of staying towards following God and staying in the Lord's commands. And Cain and Abel, ultimately, Seth were raised in the same house. So why did they, why did they end up so differently? No matter how hard we try to be perfect, parents and, and, in our, and to do all the things that, that we feel God commands us as, as the adults in the home, our, our children still may wander and they may do things that we don't, we don't approve of or, or God doesn't even approve of. And it may have absolutely nothing to do with anything that we've done. Our job as parents is to be faithful and obedient to what God has called us to do and to leave the rest up to him. And I know it's hard, especially when we have children that wander. Um, but the reality is, when we look back at our own lives, didn't, didn't all of us wander at some point or do things that we shouldn't have done? And, and it's, it's very hard. A lot of times I'll, I'll say things about my own children that, that I find displeasing in some way or another. My wife's like, <clears throat> you remember when? And I'm like, oh, yeah. All right. So... I think that the main thing is for us to pray that they come back quickly and that these things sort themselves out as God God ordains it. This week, we're going to start chapter 6, and we're going to begin to see God getting to the point where evil of man is more than he's willing to bear. The disobedience is too much. He sets in motion the idea of eliminating evil he sees in man, and I put I put end in quotations because humanity's evil never really ends. We, we see it a little bit differently in this chapter, and I'll, I'll explain why that is. And it's, it's, again, it's one of those things that's subtle. You have to see it. You, gotta, you have to read the words and understand what, what, what Moses is saying here when he's writing these. But our points for today are going to be sons of God, the Nephilim, and regret. So if you would, let's stand up. There he is right there. Dr. Evil. Evil. Million dollars. One million dollars. Dr. Evil. All right. When we, let's read. We're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 today. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. His name, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into, into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he has made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. Um, Lord, we just thank you again for your time. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for your word and just pray that you would give us wisdom as we go through this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be So who were these sons of God? There's a couple of different interpretations, the way that people interpret this section of Genesis. They both fit the story here. And if it, I think one fits better than the other one, and I'll get through that in a second. There, but there's basically two different options before us. The first is that the sons of God are the sons of the lineage of Seth, okay? Those that followed the ways of God. The other option is that they were fallen angels. These angels that came down with Lucifer when he was kicked out, and a third of the angels were kicked out with him out of heaven. Both options fit the storyline here in our text, um, but fits more with the entirety of Scripture, and I'll explain that as we go through this. So let's look at the first idea, which is the line of Seth. This interpretation says that the sons of the line of Seth started to intermarry with the line of Cain. And these women then turned the men who were following God away from following God. And then you started seeing all this evil that was coming around on the earth. Since now there were no good lines left on earth, God decided to wipe them out. It kind of makes sense if you look at what we were talking about last week in chapter 5, um, that the sons of God are those who were following God, and the daughters of man were the ones that had quit following God and were following things of the flesh, just as we had read about. We actually see throughout Scripture the warnings of marrying people outside of our own belief system. And I want to clear this up for you because I've heard people argue that God is racist or God does all these different things because some of it because of this, but more in other texts where actually what we were just reading about in, like in Joshua. Um, first of all, God's not racist because he created all races. So it, it has nothing to do with race. The, the, this and every single case that you deal with that talks about intermarriage, in the Bible, God's, God's talking about removing them from situations where they would marry people of other religions. It has nothing to do with color. It has nothing to do with country of origin. It has nothing to do with any of those things. God did not want his people marrying people from other religions because the spouse of the other religion would turn them away from following him. And there's many, many biblical examples of this going on. But I want to read Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6 to show you this. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to take a possession of it, he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you defeat them. 
Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them or show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters or sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So basically God, in, in a situation like this in Deuteronomy, I want you to eliminate them because I don't want any risk at all of you getting intermingled with what's going on in, in the evil that those people are doing. God's chosen people were not, were not to marry outside their faith because it never ended well. This is a biblical principle throughout Scripture, and it's one that we should still be following today. We would refer to it today as basically being unequally yoked. If you see, did I put the picture up there? I think so. So you got like an ox and you got a donkey, okay? They're going to go at different speeds. They're going to go at different rates. They're gonna, one's going to pull, one's going to push. It's, it never works out when you unequally yoke those two animals. It's a massive hurdle to get. And, and I, I personally, as a pastor, would never perform a wedding of an unequally yoked couple because when you start off with a marriage where it's not God-centered at the beginning, you're just asking for trouble. So this concept right here fits in line with our text. If the line of Seth is mar marrying with the line of Cain, the whole line of Seth becomes corrupt, and, and God has no choice but to destroy it and start over. That, that's the first interpretation. Like I said, it kind of lines up with our text for today, but does it line up with all of Scripture? Let's look at our second, second interpretation option, which is the sons of God as fallen angels. First of all, it does explain the Nephilim better. Um, and secondly, it explains, there's a section in Jude, verses 6 and 7, that it explains better as it fits into this narrative. Okay? And I'll get into that. When... This, this interpretation is basically that we have fallen angels who have come down from heaven. They're actually demons at this time. And they're having sexual relations with human women. Okay? And as a result, there are children that are born, and they're quite different. They're, they're super strong. And that alone right there eliminates the first interpretation. Because if me as a sinner, if I intermarry with somebody else who's another sinner, I, I don't change DNA. I, I don't just make the superhuman, well, I chose the right sinner. No, that's not the way that works. So this was superhuman DNA that was, that was going on here. My second point, which is the Nephilim, because I'm going to tie this all back together. The second viewpoint is one that is historically because what were the Nephilim? The term is translated as giants or fallen ones. And they were written about um, in, in the book of Enoch and other books as doing evil all of the time. Okay? 
the Bible says that they were mighty men who were of old and men of renown. So were they good or bad? Well, let's, let's look at what they were. Um, all the early sources, the sons of heaven as angels, from the 3rd century um, B.C. onwards, references are found in, in the Enochic literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Genesis of Apocryphon, the Damascus document, Jubilees, the Testament of Reuben, um, Second Baruch, Josephus, and the book of Jude, compare it to 2 Peter 2, for example. Um, in, in Enoch 7, 2, and when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, and they became enamored of them, saying to each other, come, let us select ourselves wives for the progeny of men, and let us beget children. Some Christian apologists, such as Tertullian, um, and especially Lac Lactantius, shared this opinion. Too much, I don't really care too much about extra-biblical writings. My point in bringing all this up is that when we look at these things, we see this huge overarching theme, and all these writings of the time talking about these men who were there. Um, even the Quran has writings about these giants. And there's not a lot written about them in our scripture, but there's just enough to know that they existed and that they were from the union of fallen angels or demons and human females. Mixed DNA resulted in these superhumans with extraordinary size and strength. What else do we know? What was the purpose of the Nephilim, and, and why are they not around anymore? Did any of you guys see the, the movie Noah? Anyone? Anyone? Thank God, because it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. In that, in that movie, they have the Nephilim as like these giant rock creatures who were helping Noah build the boat. It's like probably the most unbiblical movie I've ever seen in my life based on the book, the Bible. I mean, it was, it was horrible. It is believed by some that the demons sent by Satan did this, had, had these angels um, mate with these human females so that they could ruin the seed of man. Therefore, there would not be a seed of Christ or the seed of the one who would bruise the head of Satan. It seems plausible, especially considering that our text says that they took as many wives as they could choose. Also, some scholars say that it was one of the many reasons for the flood. Okay, And, and I, I don't think there's a lot of hypothesizing that goes on. They, they do make a lot of sense biblically, but we also know that God did not like it and he'd had enough. Okay, um, If you flip over... You can flip over. I think I put it up there. Jude 6. Did I put it up there? It says, And the angels who did not stay with their own authority but left their proper dwelling. Are the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serving as an example um, by undergoing a punishment of eternal 
fire. So the angels went outside was allowed and indulged in sexual immorality with the daughters of Adam, and God finally puts an end to it, okay? And, and they're still, to this day, in, in, in eternal chains. And I would say, this is me, different scholars that say different things about this, but I would say the Nephilim ended with the flood. Um, some would say giants like Goliath and the people of Gath and things like that were Nephilim, but I would, I would disagree with that because the Bible, first of all, never calls them that. Secondly, um, th there, was, there was another name, and that's, that's a whole other study. Now, the scripture supports the idea that angels had relations with human women. The offspring were these giant people, and God put an end to it, if not by the flood, and shortly after that. So, let's get to our last point, which is regret. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on this earth and grieved him from his heart. There's a lot going on here, and we need to read a little bit more into what's written than, what, than what's here. First of all, because there's a lot of people that have a problem with the flood as, as a whole, in general. Just the concept of a loving God who would do this to people. Okay. First of all, we, we all know that God is so how, how could he regret making man? Does, does man get so frustrated, or does God get so frustrated with man, he wants nothing to do with us. And it, and it takes us, it, it takes a lot for God to get to that point with us, doesn't it? So how does this happen? We, we have to read the scripture, the words that are used here very, very carefully. We have to become so morally corrupt that there is no good thoughts left in us. And that's exactly what the text says here. Th these women were sleeping with demons. The men, it says, had every intention of their hearts were evil. Every intention. We as, as people, as bad as we can act, as bad as we can get, we don't get to where every single thought that we have is evil. That, that's, that's a place where I, I hope nobody ever gets. That's like Jeffrey Dahmer level. I mean, that's like a whole new, that, that's a whole level of evil. And our text today says all of the people were like that. They were all at a stage where the, the moral corruption was so bad that we can't even imagine it. Now, some of you may look at your brother and sister and says, yeah, pure evil. God, have your way with them. Away with them. Be done. Right? You guys don't understand. It's not, I mean, your, your brother and sister, you, you may not like them right now, but the reality is they, they're not pure evil. They, they, they have good, even though you don't want to admit it now, because most of you guys are teenagers, you don't want to admit this, your, your 
have good qualities. They do. I'm telling you, it happens. It, it's not the same kind of evil as we're talking about here. Remember just last week we were talking about how Seth was following God and they were doing these things after, after God. And the majority had fallen into a place where they were continually doing evil in the sight of the Lord. People look at God and they say, well, he's so evil for this. But they forget how depraved these people were. And we're, we're, we are a far, far stretch past the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. R.C. Sproul says, sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. We talked about this before. Every sin that we make, every decision that we make to sin is a decision we make to sin. We make the choice. Nobody goes, oh, I, I, was, I was born so I can't change my life. Yeah, you can. And it doesn't matter if you're an axe murderer. It doesn't matter if you're a liar. It doesn't matter if you're a thief. It doesn't matter what it is. You make the choice to disobey God. You make that choice. If you steal a paperclip from your boss, you've made that choice. If you conk your brother over the head because you think he's pure evil, you've made that choice. That's a decision that you make. These people had gotten to where they purposely chose to do this with every thought they had. We see only Noah and his family are spared this wrath because of their obedience. And we see this begin to happen over and over again throughout Scripture. God promised he never going to do that again. Um, we're getting into the flood more next week, but in this section of regret, we need to look at not only how bad humanity got, but how bad it had gotten that there was only a few worth saving. We're, we're talking probably by this time, there was millions of people on, on earth at, by this time. And I want to read to you the end of Romans chapter 1 just to kind of give you an example of how it did continue on, but, but in, in a different way. There was a different result. Um, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, as God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, is clearly, has been clearly perceived to creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave to their lust to the dishonor. 
God from high and worshipped the Creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolishness, faithful, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, there's one thing in here that just sticks out when we're talking about the difference between the end of Romans and this verse in chapter 6. It says in verse 30 in Romans chapter 1, it says that they were inventors of evil. That's a far cry from every thought that you have being evil. You read those things, you read that thing in, in the book of Romans, and you go, wow, those people are bad. That's just, I mean, they're doing a lot of really bad stuff there. And we need to remember that the reality is people forever have sinned. People have always done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And although that we know God, even the atheist knows between good and bad. They, they may deny it's from God, but they, they know good and bad. And this text says it right here. They make false idols. They claim wisdom when they're fools. They commit shameless acts. And knowing that, knowing that they do all of these things anyway. So, knowing all of this list of things that human beings do, the one big difference that we see today's in today's world compared to what happened before the flood is that God still sees in us He still sees in us, even though we have these mistakes and we make these bad choices and we do these things, it's not evil continually. God sees good in us. So he sends his son. He sends Jesus Christ. Because aside from Christ, we, we are like the man before the flood. Our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And, and instead of regret because he knew we would continue to sin, he sent Christ instead. We talked about this in youth group last night. We were talking a little bit about different religions. 
Christianity is the only religion out there where the God dies for the people. And he does it when we don't deserve it. The reality is, is that he dies for you because he wants a relationship with you even with all that junk that we do, all that badness that we do, because he still sees the good. Luther said, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. We, we as humans put so much faith in our ability to solve our own issues instead of just letting God handle them. God blotted out man with the flood because man had completely blotted out God. They had gotten to a point where they no longer saw good at all. And it's not, it's not that God is petty. It was because there was no good in them. We, we saw that in, in the story of Joshua. God told them to completely annihilate those people and eliminate them because when you go, when he, he was sending those people into the promised land, he did not want those people ruining. How about that? Think about that for a second. You had people wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they couldn't be faithful to God. And God's like, yeah, I don't want you remember, I don't want you mixing it up with those people over there. They're bad. Well, so were they. It was just a different kind of bad. It was a completely disobedient to God bad. And he gets to a point where he's like, can't, we can't continue this because there's no hope left in them. For us, no matter how bad we think it is for us, um, or for those people that we see or those people that we encounter that we run into, Christ is always there for them. He, he's waiting to wrap his arms around us and forgive us, no matter what it is. No matter how bad we get, his grace is bigger than our sin. We just have to believe that. The sons of God knew who Christ was and tried, tried to ruin that seed. The outcome was a total depravity of man to a point beyond repair. God didn't punish them. They knew what the cost was and they chose it. That's what people don't understand about heaven and hell. They said God sends people to hell. God doesn't do anything. You choose that. It's a decision you make. All these sins are decisions the people make. We can actually get to a point where we harden our hearts towards God. And you know what? I, I will never give up on somebody who I think has hardened their hearts towards God because I've seen God do amazing miracles through some of those people. I've seen some of the worst scum of the earth that you could ever imagine give their lives to Christ and become some of the best pastors you've ever run into in your life. Think about Saul. Saul was out there killing Christians. He, he says, Paul says, I was the worst of the worst sinners. And until he met Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, there was nothing going to change that. <laughs> 
he was, he was hell-bent on killing people. Saul was actually criminalizing loving God. And God used him. We need to think about that. We think our life is bad, or we think we're not that good, or we think there's all kinds of problems in our life. We, we have nothing compared to the evil Saul was doing. I always, you know, I always throw this out there because it's true. People go, oh, my life's so bad. I go, were you a murdering, adulterous liar? Because that's what David was, and he was a man after God's own heart. It's all about our perspective. God sees the good in, in who we are. And, and thank God, even the worst of us aren't at a place where we're beyond redemption. All we have to do is call on Christ. His grace and his mercy are there. He's always loved us even knowing, this is important, Jesus Christ has always loved us even knowing what he knows about us. Some of us come in here and we're like, oh, I can't do this because it's, it's so bad. You don't understand, Pastor Dude. I've been this and I've done that and it's been bad. Knowing what we did, knowing what we are, knowing who we are, he went and put himself on the cross anyway. Because he had to. He did it to redeem the unredeemable. And the only thing that we have to do is not harden our heart toward that. Nobody, and I've never run into anybody. I've run into people who are hard. I've run into people who are, are difficult. I've never, run, I've never run into anybody who is continually evil. They may do bad things, but they're not continually evil. That's what God wiped out. So we just need to put our faith in Christ. We need to turn from whatever it is we're doing, follow him, and he's always there to embrace us, to forgive us, and to give us grace. And so many can't accept that grace because they think it's so bad what they did. Look at Paul. Look at what Paul did. Guarantee it wasn't as bad. Guarantee. Let's stand up. We'll pray. Lord,